Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm Jared Kimber and with me is John Norman. Each week, We'll be taking a deep dive into one particular topic and asking a question about sport. This week we're asking, why did the UK get hooked on The Last Dance? A TV show about a sport very few people watch. The look away to Lovingston, Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. Ever since it aired, Michael Jordan has once again become one of the most famous people on the planet. Kids are trying to recreate his moves, or at least they will be when they're allowed back into school. Adults old enough to know better are starting to look online at high tops and Air Jordans, and still no one can really work out how it's possible to jump that high. Basketball has become mainstream in the UK in a way that it really never has before. But there's also been criticisms and questions, complaints from former teammates about how they were portrayed, from journalists that Jordan had too much editorial control and about why Jordan's reputation as an off-court bully wasn't explored deeper. So what is holding the sport of basketball back in the UK? Are we right to demand impartiality from sports documentaries? And was Jordan a bully and does it matter? And if we can't trust Jordan to portray himself correctly, then who can we trust? This is The Dive and you're listening to TalkSport. Hello, John. Hello, mates. I have a feeling, Jared, you've got something you want to get off your chest this week. Certainly in the last few days, you're becoming more and more animated. So before we really get going, tell me, because I don't know the answer to this question, what did you think of The Last Dance? Uh, I love that it exists. <laughs> I think it was incredible. But I already lived through the 90s basketball and I kind of knew most of the stories. I, I love great sports documentaries and this is certainly a great sports documentary, but... I get a little bit frustrated with the control factor. Jordan looking at an iPad to laugh at people who were making valid points. I just I found the whole thing very weird, but it was spectacular because the music was great and the basketball was great and uh, Michael Jordan was hilarious, sometimes on purpose, mostly by accident. Most sport fans are actually sports fans. And ever since I've known you, your love of basketball has always shone through. It's always been about cricket and it's always been about basketball. 
But in the 10 years that we've known each other, we've never really talked about your love of it. So where did it come from? Melbourne is weirdly a capital of basketball. We've had two NBA number one draft picks, plus a lot of incredible women players and, and, and other players come through. So Melbourne's this really weird place where everyone plays basketball. When I was a kid, we would have like basketballers come to our school and give clinics. And one of them was a guy called Cecil Exum. And his son now plays in the NBA. And so you just had this thing where basketball was everywhere and it was just such a normal sport in Australia. And so I played it as a kid. I collected basketball cards. Uh, when the NBA like had events in Australia, I would go, like I met Muggsy Bogues. And, and it's such a, a game that sort of seeps in. It's just that I never got a chance to really write about it professionally. So I bore people like you about it, but I haven't written about it um, as much. But here's something that I've never told another human being as far as I'm aware. I have trouble sleeping and I've always had trouble sleeping. The way that I go to sleep every night is I run through basketball training drills in my head. Sometimes I even go into match simulations on how it would work in, in, on a match simulation. But literally, you know, I'm running pick and rolls. I'm looking at curls. I'm looking at screens. Um, I'm cutting to the basket. I mean, some of this language may make no sense to you, John. But essentially, that's what I do to get to sleep. That's how deep the game is. When I backpacked across um, America, we literally we planned our backpacking around NBA games. And the final game of the backpacking adventure was Washington Wizards because that's where Michael Jordan was at that time. But what about when, since you've moved to the UK? Because you say you bore me about it. Actually, you don't bore me about it. We don't talk about it. No one has wanted to talk to me about basketball in the UK since I've got here. Um, and so I just sort of internalise it. And I'm on my phone, you know, and playing NBA Live and I've got NBA 2K. And, and then suddenly the last dance comes out, you know, and what, what a perfect storm the last dance is. Michael Jordan, one of the most famous athletes on earth, ESPN, Netflix, and a global pandemic. And suddenly everyone in England is like watching a basketball documentary and is completely hooked. I felt a bit like that actually back in 2005. 2005 ashes happened. Suddenly I couldn't stop for people telling me how brilliant cricket is. And I'm thinking, hang on, where have you been for the last 25 years? You can't just turn up now and tell me cricket's good. It's a bit annoying. You feel a bit aggrieved because... That's your identity, and suddenly it's been taken away from you a little bit. So what about you then? Other than me occasionally talking to you about true shooting percentage, uh, which I won't explain here because it could take half an hour, uh, how is basketball registered in your life? If I'm being totally honest, and this is a little bit embarrassing, if I was to say what came to mind if somebody was to talk about basketball up until the age of 20, I'd say... It would be the Harlem Globetrotters. And then, when I went to university, I played NBA Jam on the SNES. That's it. To be fair, now, I, I did do some research on this. Harlem Globetrotters were really big in England. And they would tour and the games would be broadcast on the TV um, in a way that the NBA never was. So it actually makes sense. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> in fact, I remember thinking that the Harlem Globetrotters were an NBA team. And it was a real surprise when I found out that they weren't. I felt cheated, Jared. Well, and also NBA Jam is one of the greatest sporting games of all time. I've got a story to tell you about NBA Jam a little bit later in the show. So remind me about that. But look, I've been thinking about basketball a lot over the last few days. And actually, I came to the conclusion that apart from football, 
when I'm walking around London, I'd probably say that basketball is the second most popular sport or second most visible sport that is being played. It's obviously well participated in, but it's almost invisible at the same time. Yeah, it's a very interesting sport from that point of view. So I got on uh, Benny Bonsu, who's uh, she's worked in basketball for BT, Sky, BBC. Uh, she works with Dwayne Wade, you know, one of the best players on earth. And her brother played in the NBA. And she's also on the board of Basketball England. Basically, she's the most basketball-y person in England. So I got her to come on and chat about this. It's interesting in the UK because it does exist in the UK. You'd be out of a job otherwise um, if it didn't exist. But it, it's not that popular in, in the sporting culture. You don't see The Guardian write about it or the Daily Mail cover it very much. It's not on the BBC or, or on TalkSport that often. Why do you think people are playing it, but it's not really cutting through? You look at how popular basketball is on the grassroots level in the UK. It's the, the most participated sports that we have in the UK on the grassroots level. But then you look at it on the national level, it's not as big. And the infrastructure is not there for it to be as successful as the NBA is. So it really can be depressing when you try and compare to what we're seeing in the last dance in the NBA as a, you know, this Hollywood, amazing talent with all these, you know, world-class players. And then we have GB. Because it's not like we don't have the talent. We do have the talent. But we just don't have the belief system within like the government institutions in education to know that if we actually nurture these um, talent that we have we can have them just as good as the u.s has it my, my favorite modern basketball story um you know when it comes to the uk is when uh, kobe bryant passed away bbc put up a video of lebron james now I mean, they are two incredibly different looking human beings. And there's no way you could do that unless you had no, whoever was involved had no idea about the sports at all. And yet LeBron James is one of the most famous people on the planet. Let me tell you something. The only time you would see The Guardian, The Telegraph, um, Mirror, The Sun, BBC, any of them writing or doing anything about NBA is either at the finals, at the playoffs, or when they have the global games. Now, when Kobe passed away and they used LeBron James's um, image for that story, in my head, I was like, but you could have reached out to any of the basketball journalists in the UK to confirm who you were putting up because clearly you doing that tells us that you do not care about a sport. Because if you did care, you could have called Benny Bonsu, you could have called Gerald, you could have called Double Clutch. But then that goes to show how little they think of the NBA, even though NBA probably is one of the most successful sports league in the world. My grandmother that lives in a village in Ghana, in a village, she doesn't even speak English, knows who Kobe Bryant is. Would be able to tell you the difference between Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. Are you telling me at the BBC sports office, you don't have anybody else that could tell you that? That was so, it was so embarrassing on so many levels because I've worked for the BBC before. But that goes to show the lack of respect that they have for basketball in the UK. You cannot be a basketball fan if you do not know that this sport transcends to different areas of life, right? So you look at music. If you love NBA, you probably love hip hop. You probably like a bit of rock because NBA stars like a mixture of all music, right? If you, if you like NBA, you probably like fashion too. You may not be the big fashion icon, but you get fashion because NBA fans 
as NBA, NBA players, that's what we live our lives by. And I know other sports try to copy like the NFL, but they rubbish in it. NBA set the tone for how things should be done, right? So all of a sudden, culturally, when you're part of the NBA family, that's what we like to call it, like NBA basketball family, we all understand each other without even having to say a word because culturally we know what's all about, right? But also if you look at what is going on around the world right now, or look at what's going on in the United States, who are the athletes that are out there leading the charge? It's NBA players. Because all of a sudden, it's not just about sports, it's also about social justice and how they use their, their platforms and their images to improve what is going on for everybody else. I just think, you know, we always say there's basketball is life and everybody looks at us like, what are they talking about? But literally, it is that. That was Benny Bonsu talking to us here on The Dive on TalkSport. So the numbers are incredible. D- David Lammy put out a tweet recently, John, where he basically said that basketball was underfunded and there were just hundreds of people saying, well, no one plays basketball in this country. But it's between the ages of 14 and 16, so 14 to 16-year-olds, it's the second most participated team sport, beating rugby and cricket by a long distance. NBA games sell out here. But also uh, 175,000 people between the age of 14 and 25 play, which is uh, as many as cricket and golf combined, according to The Independent. And 336,000 people over the age of 14 play at least once a month. I mean, it's, it's a sport that exists in this country, and yet you wouldn't feel that way at all if you were you know, consuming major um, sport um, programs and, and publications. We live in a world where sports has never been richer, but at the same time, sports away from the big three or four are finding it more and more difficult to get funding. And the way you get funding in the UK is through medals at the Olympics, or if your sport demands such a huge support base that the money in itself could be made from that. So participation is important, of course, but basketball, like UK athletics, like horse racing, like so many sports, because it doesn't command the audience or the money, and because football is drowning out every other sport going, um, it's suffering. It might be a high participation sport, but unless there is a strong league in Britain, and there is not, that that's a problem. The, the interesting thing is that if you look at the participation and you look at the money that comes in from governments, you know they are going towards the medals. But actually, there are so many extra people playing that it makes more sense to push the actual game of basketball than it does to push rowing. You can't get that many people in the rowing boats, even if you're going to win more gold medals. So there's a problem with the way that we look at how funding works in sport. Do we want more people to be able to play sport or do you want more people to win gold medals? And I think governments around the world, not just in the UK, are always battling with that. And I think basketball in the UK is missing out at the moment. You are listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber, and with me is John Norman, and we're talking about The Last Dance tonight. This is Wright Thompson, and he's probably the most famous sports writer in America and one of the most famous sports writers, well, ever. He's interviewed Michael Jordan quite a few times. He's an ESPN senior correspondent, and here he is talking about just how famous Michael Jordan used to be. So when Space Jam was coming out, the movie, they were trying, Warner Brothers was trying to figure out where to send Michael to do press. They commissioned this study to find out the most recognizable people on the planet overall and country to country. And they found that, that the most recognizable person on the planet was Princess Diana. 
The second most recognizable person on the planet was Michael Jordan. And the third most recognizable person on the planet was the Pope. And about a year later, Michael is sitting in a hotel room in Las Vegas with a friend of his, and they're watching the news, and they see that Princess Diana has been killed, and not only killed, but sort of literally killed by fame. I mean, as much as that can actually happen. And they're just sitting there, and his friend turns to him, and and more a moment of fear than hubris was just like, you're the most famous person on the planet now. And, you know, let that hang there for a second. The whole thing is ridiculous to begin with. The fact that an athlete in a sport in the 90s was that big and that he was also co-starring with Bugs Bunny. I'm not sure if you um, have seen Space Jam, John, but that film does not hold up today. That, is a, that, has, that film has Michael Jordan, Bugs Bunny and Bill Murray and is still a terrible film. Um, I've seen Roger Rabbit. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Is it, is it part of the same family? I was going to say in that genre. I'm not sure that's even a genre, but yeah, it's, it's certainly like that. No one talks about who framed Roger Rabbit anymore either. Look, I didn't see Space Jam, but I did say that I was going to tell you a quick story about NBA Jam, okay? So this will, <laughs> this will amaze you. But a few years ago, I actually did some basketball commentary huh. professionally. I got paid for it. So it, it this was... This sounds horrible. It was about... <laughs> it was, right? So it was about four or five years ago. I get the call. Can you come in tomorrow and do some basketball commentary? Sure, I thought. Went on Wikipedia, did a print out of a basketball court, <laughs> learn basketball for dummies ru- <laughs> learn a few of the rules or laws i don't know they are rules and essentially and essentially went to uh the studio and <laughs> and i did three back-to-back euro league games i think they were euro league games i can't remember but essentially jared you know i mentioned nba jam <laughs> you know i mentioned nba jam that's all i knew about basketball so <laughs> I didn't really boom know shakalaka. About. <laughs> Is that all you said all so, game? Was it boom shakalaka? Things heating up. I, I did. So <laughs> all I would say is stuff along the lines of he's heating up. And then so, so after about two weeks of doing this basketball commentary, obviously somebody listened to it and realized that I didn't really have much in my back pocket apart from every now and again going for three (laughs) (laughs) or he's heating up um i didn't get the call back so um so yeah that that's my story about nba jam but i know that you don't really understand or you are questioning or you're a bit quizzical about why the last dance has been so popular to a uk audience Mm. a uk audience that doesn't know anything about basketball so i'm going to give it a go i'm going to try and make you understand why those two things are actually linked and the reason it's so popular has got a lot to do with the fact that people don't follow basketball but first off this is from johnny owen and friends new show on talk sport uh, that takes place on a sunday johnny owen is a director film director he directed a film about brian clough the, the legendary nottingham forest manager uh, and he was chatting with mark webster who covered the nba what a plum gig this was by the way he was sent to live in new york for three years to cover the NBA for Channel 4 in the 1990s. But it's brilliantly done. The, the, you know, just speaking as a filmmaker, everything about it is superb. The setup, as we call it in, in the film world, which is why you watch something, 
uh, is is fantastic. It's basically it's about an old team, a bunch of warriors. Mm. It's an age old story of going once more into the beach. It's it drama, isn't it? Drama. So you're in straight away, you know. And uh, I did this on I Believe in Miracles. You know, I, the setup's so important. It's where you talk about somebody uh, or you set up the story, uh, and then you know you invest in it. And this is what the great thing about the last dance is. You've basically got all the great all the great uh, protagonists of a, of a drama. Poor Jerry. Jerry Krauts, who's the CEO, yeah, who gets he wants to break up this. Through. He wants to break up this yeah. great old team uh, with arguably the most famous basketball player ever as their star, because he thinks that uh, they're getting too old. Mm. So they play collectively for one more season, and they uh, they go on this journey. I mean, the seven stories mark they tell you in, in filmmaking you can yeah. make, and this one is the called what they would call the quest. But isn't it weird how real life still fell into line yeah. to let that story be told that way? I was the perfect person to watch this, to use the cliche, you don't have to enjoy basketball to watch this documentary right. series. I didn't know anything about it. I now know you get three points if you shoot from downtown. Didn't really understand American no. sports or watch it particularly. Um, but, you know, I bought into this because it's, 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 a, it's a great drama, it's a great story, it's a great, you know, it's a great journey. But this is the kicker. This is the absolutely nailed on reason why The Last Dance appealed to a UK non-basketball audience. This is a UK audience, of course, that is ravenous for sport. In 1984, 24 million people watched figure skating as Torval and Dean won gold in the Olympics. OK, the year later, 19 million people stayed up past midnight to watch a game of snooker. So this is a sports crazy country. Now you can say, well, that's different because that's live sport. But the, it, it isn't different. And I tell you why. We didn't know what was going to happen. Can you imagine this? You're sitting down and you're about to watch the last dance. We didn't know about the flu game. We didn't know about the 1.8 second game. We didn't know that after Scottie Pippen said he wasn't going to play, Tony Kukoc would nail the shot. We didn't know that Steve Kerr was going to nail the shot. The only reason we knew Dennis Rodman was because he went out with Madonna. Hang on a second. This guy is an absolute beast of a basketballer who stands alongside the likes of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. And crucially, when Netflix staggered the show, when episodes 9 and 10 were still to come, we didn't know that the last dance would see the Chicago Bulls beating Utah Jazz, winning the title. We didn't know all that. Now, for somebody who enjoys watching America's Next Supermodel or whatever it's called, you've got to understand, Jared, the last dance for us was live sport. And not only was it live sport, it was the greatest sports story of all time. The two things are linked. That's why we loved it so much. It's very fair. I mean, as an 11-year-old, I was practicing the moves that you were discovering for the first time well into your 40s. So, I mean, we come at it from completely different areas. So I put this question to Wright Thompson as well because I don't even believe that The Last Dance is the best sports documentary I've ever seen. Are you down with the whole best documentary ever or is it just because we've got no sport and everyone watched it in, in one go? Because, I mean, I, as a Hoop Streams fan, still think that Hoop Oh, no, it's not Hoop Streams. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what I mean? But like, you know, 
I guess the way to say it is like, look, is Bon Iver better than Guns N' Roses? Yes. Have you ever seen Guns N' Roses do Paradise City live when Axel picks up the whistle and Slack, Slash has the guitar slung low and they have those huge stacks of marshals and you think that the roof of the basketball arena is going to lift off? It's awesome. They're not the same thing. And I don't know why you can't just be like, dude, I love Bon Iver. I love the Black Keys. They're not Guns N' Roses. The Black Keys can't play Wembley. Do you know what I mean? Like, like they're, just, they're just different things and should be appreciated. I mean, like you can debate what should have been or should not have been in that Jordan documentary to the end of time. What you cannot debate is that the thing on the screen was gripping. Like you couldn't turn away from what was on the screen. Now there are all sorts of perfectly valid conversations to be had about the difference between storytelling and journalism. And I've had them, I mean, I've had a lot of them privately about this documentary, but like no one can say that it wasn't utterly gripping. I just keep thinking about it like, don't tell me a Guns N' Roses show sucks because it just doesn't. So I should point out here that Hoop Dreams is the reason I started making sports documentaries. It's, th- I think, one of the best documentaries ever made, if not the best documentary ever made. Uh, and it's worth, if you did like The Last Dance, it is worth going to see it. But also, I've now learned two things. You should never take on Wright Thompson uh, about Guns N' Roses. And that he's right. This was, I, I think there, there was a lot of basketball fans that got, we got too much in our heads about this. But realistically, it was just, it was a just a, it was a banging film, wasn't it, from beginning to end, or a banging TV series from beginning to end. To keep to make it that entertaining for ten episodes, even if you have all those great characters, is just it's incredible filmmaking, and it was so entertaining. But they did have Michael Jordan, and I think it's worth mentioning. You know, he is such a ridiculous figure. If you've never seen him close up, I can understand all of that. And it was something that me and uh, Benny Bonsu talked about as well uh, when it comes to you know Michael Jordan and why people love him so much. But when you look at Jordan on a global stand, standpoint, what he's achieved on soil. And remember, during his time, we didn't have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all of that. So if somebody in Africa or China knew about Michael Jordan, you, you, your mind is blown. Because like, how did they know about him? People forget. But before that time, it wasn't an international sport. It was a domestic league in America. A domestic league that had one or two internationals that participated in there. It wasn't a huge thing to them because still in America, NBA is not the number one sport, you know, but globally it's so huge. And that's thanks to Michael Jordan. You know, Michael Jordan's brand of Air Jordan, you know, I want to be like Mike. But also we go back to the cultural aspect of his success is when they did um, his advert for his shoes with Spike Lee where it transcended off the, off the basketball court and then into the streets. Then everybody's talking about it. So all of a sudden, he's an icon that everybody, every black boy, every white boy, every girl wanted to be a basketball player because they had the swagger. And this is the kind of impact he had, even though he was just doing what he wanted to do, which was become just the best in the world. That was Benny Bonsu, and you're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. Look, I mean, when you look at Jordan, he kind of had every base covered. He's playing a cool sport to begin with. You know, uh, his highlights packages are incredible. He's a good-looking person. He's incredibly athletic. He's kinda, he kind of had everything going for him. So it does make sense that he transcended everything, doesn't it? But when you consider how many games are in a season, it does seem to me that you're playing constantly. I mean, 82 games when you throw in the amount of travel in between it as well, you know, this is a, this is an incredible 
athlete who not only achieved great things, but he did it over such a, a long period of time. He did, and he changed the way that sports were run in so many different aspects. So I'm going to talk about one little bit, the shoes. I think, I think we have to talk about the shoes. So when, when Jordan was signed by Nike, um, Adidas didn't want Jordan, right? He wasn't that big a player at that point. Nike did want him. Nike at that stage um, and in that, that period, um, Adidas were much bigger than them. Converse were, Converse were much bigger in basketball. Reebok would become much bigger than them. Nike wasn't even that big a thing in the 80s. Uh, fast forward to now, and things are, are different. I think the last valuation that I found that I, you know o- online was Nike is worth roughly now forty billion dollars, right? Converse, which is now owned by Nike, is worth worth one point two billion. That's how much things have changed. The number one fashion brand in the United States is Nike. So Jordan basically made the sport of basketball bigger. Uh, he made the way the athletes look after themselves a completely different thing. And he changed the fashion um, tastes of Americans. That's an incredible thing for one person to do. You then got, there's a McDonald's ad with him and Larry Bird, which goes for like a minute, which is just them playing basketball for a minute. And then you've got, and I cannot stress this enough, John, we've already mentioned it a couple of times. He was in a movie with Bugs Bunny, John, with (laughs) Bugs Bunny. But he was the perfect person to bring all those things together. And we didn't have them in sport beforehand. Okay, so that's all the good stuff, I suppose. Uh, We're going to have to address some of the bad stuff as well. So coming up, we will talk about the bullying and also just the rise of sports documentaries and how they played a part in all this. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber, and John Norman is here with me. And so far, we've talked about British basketball and a lot about Michael Jordan. But, John, I think we need to talk about sports documentaries because they are huge right now. Let me just go through um, some of the documentaries so uh, that have come out recently. So at the start of the lockdown, I think the, the test, which was about the Australian cricket team, there's obviously, we're now into season two of Sunderland Till I Die, which I think is just absolutely brilliant. And I, I love watching that. And, you know, I have no, I, I don't even know, you know, where Sunderland is. I know it's in the north. 
Like, but they don't have a cricket ground there that I've ever visited. There's a new season on, on an NFL team every year, which is under the title All or Nothing. I'm absolutely hooked on those. There was an All Blacks version as well, which didn't work because uh, the All Blacks are too nice, basically, and too successful. Uh, Manchester City had one. The Mumbai Indians um, had another one on Amazon. There's the Andy Roddick one. And Lance Armstrong has one that has just come out, I think, uh, very recently on ESPN. And there's about to be an Oscar Pistorius one. Like, you talked about being in the age of sport on the previous episode of The Dive. Uh, we're almost in the age of sports documentaries. They're almost bigger than the game at times now. So you made Death of a Gentleman, for those listeners who haven't watched it. It's a film essentially about corruption in cricket. It studies the way that decisions are made at the very highest level, usually behind closed doors. But a lot of the criticism that has come out of The Last Dance has centred around the editorial control that Michael Jordan had in the making of the actual film itself. Uh, at the top of the show, you yourself mentioned that that was one of the reasons that you couldn't quite engage with it in, in quite the same manner. I think because Michael Jordan was clearly part of the editorial process of The Last Dance, and that was clearly signposted at the start, we, the viewer, are not lied to. There is an understanding put in place that what you're about to see may not have the journalistic integrity. Maybe it can't even be classed as a documentary. It should just be classed as a TV show. But it's worth it it's because it's freed up all of that previously unseen footage from ESPN. It meant that you could take a classic sport and bring it to a whole new audience. If that means Michael Jordan glosses over the fact that he was a bully, if that means that Michael Jordan glosses over certain other aspects of his, uh, his gambling, as long as we're made aware of it, and we were, I don't really have that much of a problem with it. I can understand why you wouldn't have that um, issue. Maybe I do because I have a piece in the game because I've made sporting documentaries. But if I was one of the other players and I'd be looking back at that, I would have a bit of an issue. And funnily enough, John, one of the other players did. This is Horace Grant. Now, Horace Grant was a great basketballer for Chicago. He won three championships with them. And probably, you know, had, had Jordan not gone off to baseball, Horace Grant probably stays with Chicago and probably wins all six, the same that Scottie Pippen did. So this is what he said about Jordan uh, after the film came out on ESPN Chicago. If MJ had a grudge with me, let's tell it like, man, let's talk about it. Or we can settle, settle it another way. I have never seen, quote unquote, a number two guy as decorated as Scottie Pippen portrayed so badly in terms of the migraine, in terms of the 1.6 or 7 seconds. Selfish. I, I have never seen this in all of my life. When that so-called documentary is, is about one person, basically, and he has the last word on what's going to be put out there, it's not a documentary. It's his narrative of what happened in the last quote-unquote dance. It wasn't real because a lot of things that he said to uh, some of his teammates, his teammates went back at it, but all of that was kind of edited out of the documentary, if you want to call it a documentary. So that was Horace Grant sounding off about Michael Jordan. Although, interestingly, he never said that Michael Jordan was a bully. One of the things I found really interesting, and maybe you can answer this question, Phil Jackson, the esteemed coach of the Chicago Pools through this ridiculously wonderful era, he actually managed to do another three-peat, didn't he, with the LA Lakers. One of the players that he had in his team was Kobe Bryant. Now, Michael Jordan, this supposed bully, Phil Jackson managed to get a tune out of, okay? He managed to convince Michael Jordan to make him realise that 
for the betterment of the team, Michael Jordan had to be a team player. And that's what I take from the last dance. I mean, maybe that's complete rubbish. He then went to LA Lakers and he fell out with Kobe Bryant so badly. He wanted Kobe Bryant traded. Kobe Bryant essentially refused to play out the tactics that Phil Jackson wanted on court. Now, Michael Jordan suddenly doesn't sound like quite the bully if that's how Kobe Bryant ended up. Or am I completely misreading it? A slightly different situation, I think. But I don't think that there was that sort of constant threat of of violence. I think something that Wright Thompson talked about was Jordan is a very loyal person. And once he buys in with you, he's sort of with you for life. I don't know if you know the story about his driver. So his driver... He was walking around the airport. Chicago Bulls forgot to send someone to pick him up from the airport. And there's a guy there who recognized him who was a limo driver who said, would you like me to take you um, um, to your hotel? Um, That guy ended up being his PA for the next 30 years. (laughs) Uh, That's the sort of person that Jordan is. He's a very loyal person. Once he decided that Phil Jackson was the right person, uh, he was willing to go with Phil Jackson. The more interesting thing is that Phil Jackson is a guy who believes in Native American theories and um, meditation and Zen. And yet he's got this sociopath basically punching people in the face on the side bullying far less talented players it's a really interesting um situation but yes you're right we're going to have to go and watch the documentary on shaquille o'neal kobe bryant and phil jackson as well i'm I'm hoping that comes out soon so there's a really interesting angle in all this too i think uh right thompson talks about this in a story that jordan talks about in the last dance One of the stories that I've always found quite interesting was the high school story of him being cut because it never played right to me, um, you know, as a, as a, as a basketball fan, it just didn't make sense that someone who could be that athletic wouldn't be on the bench. Now in the documentary, they go pretty strong on, I was cut in high school and this, everything led to this. Uh, Your piece says the opposite. It's just not true. I mean, it's technically true, except the coach didn't cut him. The coach put him on the JV team because he was like, this guy is a great player and I don't want him sitting on the varsity bench for 30 games when he could play every minute of every game on the JV because he has this incredible gift and the only thing that he needs is minutes. And so, I mean, it was interesting because the coach was really haunted by the fact that Jordan turned him into an avatar for the dumbest coach ever. So that was Wright Thompson. Uh, You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber. This is John Norman. Uh, I find that really interesting, that whole kind of narrative that that we build. It works on an elite athlete sort of thing, but I also think it works on a human thing. We all sort of build these fake narratives into our life. Like I still think of myself as this sort of working class battler from the outer suburbs of Melbourne, made good, you know, my, my parents didn't go to university or didn't finish high school. I didn't finish high school and here I am. But I think about myself as that person, even while I live in a huge house in London. You know, we sort of build these these things. And it's interesting, you know, to hear Michael Jordan do. And I, But I also understand that there is a bit of a blurry line in this documentary about the, the truth and the line between fact and fiction. You and I both do feature stuff and we both have to deal with very famous people at times. There is a certain point where you almost have to buy into their story to get them on side, isn't there? And there is no as much as we, we want it to be, quite often there is no actual truth anyway, is there? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I, don't, I think I disagree with that. I okay. think there are shades, and I think there is a story that someone tells about themselves, and I think there's a story other people tell about that person, 
And I think that both of those things can have elements of truth. And I think that often the actual thing lives in the space between those two. Uh, so I think there is such a thing as truth. I think it is subjective and I think it lives sometimes on a spectrum. But no, I do think there is, there are stories that are true and I do think there is hagiography. And I think that there is a huge difference between those two things. So that was Wright Thompson talking to us on the dive. And I think Wright and I are kind of talking about the same thing here. I just think that I think absolute truth is very hard to find uh, when you look about, uh, you know, I don't want to get too into the uh, Japanese novel Rashomon, but everyone does have a kind of a different view of the truth. And there's, you know, 15 people in that change room and there's coaches and assistants and the poor old general manager gets slagged off the whole time, doesn't he? You know, er everyone's got their own version of the truth. Outside of the fact that the Chicago Bulls won six championships, Michael Jordan scored about a billion points, everything else is opinion or a version of the truth. I'm not sure there actually is truth there. I think as long as you understand and it's made clear at the start where people are coming from, that relationship between viewer and writer or uh, editor, whoever's putting it together, as long as that relationship is clear, then I don't have a problem with it. And I also don't think it's possible to ever create anything without somebody being critical of it, whether that's an, a majestic piece of art or a, or a piece of music or a 15,000 word article. A few months ago, I sat down and watched Ken Burns series on Vietnam. OK, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's a 10 part series. It's 18 hours long. It took 10 years to make. And if you look at the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a 98% approval rating and a weighted average score of 9.5 out of 10. The reason I'm saying this is because Ken Burns was critical about The Last Dance, saying that the type of journalism that it employs is going in the opposite direction of where journalism wants to be going. I wouldn't disagree with that, but I would go back to what I was saying before. I want to see the footage from 20, 30 years ago. And if this is the only way of seeing that footage and, and learning that story, then I'm happy for Michael Jordan to be the one telling me the story. But even that series, Vietnam, which is heralded as one of the great documentaries of its time, has been criticised. And you know what? It was criticised for its lack of truth. The scholar Thomas Bass criticised Vietnam for its urge towards healing and reconciliation rather than truth. So I think we can do everything we possibly can to create um, reality, actuality in a documentary format. But at the end of the day, it's still our version of events. Uh, it would have been better if it was Michael Jordan who was criticising the Vietnam documentary. That would have been an incredible story. But yet, I, I think that it is fair to say this is Michael Jordan's story. And that is, um, you know, and Wright Thompson brought up a very valid point when, when talking about that as well. Jordan's involved with The Last Dance and uh, he almost gets the final say anytime, you know, Gary Payton says something, we cut back to Jordan laughing at him. How, how much is this a very accurate sports documentary as someone who spent time with Michael Jordan and how much is it basically what Michael Jordan is willing to show us? You know, that's a really interesting question. It's also probably the million dollar question. Uh, I've spent a lot of time around him and I mean, I'm telling you, the guy on the screen is the guy I've seen in a room. I mean, the, the relentless beating of the need to prove drum is utterly accurate. And I also think that, like, if you think that somebody who works for Michael Jordan is going to be able to get Michael Jordan to stop playing golf and deep sea fishing and drinking tequila long enough to watch 10 hours, like, I just don't buy it. 
I just don't buy that he's in an editing room. Like, uh, <laughs> like I don't, ha I don't know. I mean, but I, that just doesn't pass the smell test for me. I mean, I think probably what happened is his people wanted this to happen and Jordan trust them and went along with it. I'm sure part of him right now is like, man, they just started to forget me. And now I'm the most famous person in America again. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber, and this is John Norman. Maybe I wouldn't be asking this question if not for Black Lives Matter and all the events in America over the last week. Maybe it's a bit shameful that I wouldn't be asking this question. But do you think that there would be such a discussion about A, Jordan's character, and B, Jordan's editorial meddling if he was white? I do understand what you're saying. And I think we have to question almost everything that we say about black athletes to a certain point because so many of us have got it so wrong so many times so I think it's fair to ask the question but in this case I think it's actually just a way that we're looking at sports documentaries a little bit more now maybe because we are more um, distrustful of the media in general that we sort of question everything that is put in front of us a little bit more now it just doesn't sit quite right unless you're talking about levels of bullying that we really should know about but the last dance does make reference to the fact that he punched Steve Kerr that he was difficult to work with bullying Jerry Jerry Krause. It does show all this stuff. Maybe subconsciously, there are some people out there who do not like to watch Michael Jordan, a black man sitting there, essentially on a throne with a cigar, a glass of tequila in a multi-million pound house. And this is one way just to bring him back down to where they think he should be. You might have a point there. I think that there are valid criticisms uh, if you have followed the story for long enough. But what I would actually say is there's not a lot different in what The Last Dance is in, than almost every uh, book written by a, a, an athlete. And, you know, w you read these books by former athletes and most of the time, what are they doing? They're correcting the record or giving their side of the record. That's essentially what this film is, isn't it? It's more. I think it's more than fair for us to question different parts of it, but we are in a slightly different society right at the moment than we ever have been before. He's an incredibly successful black man. There hadn't been that many, and there certainly hadn't been people who had been as famous in as many different ways as, as Michael Jordan was. Once you have someone at that level famous, even if they're not black, people do try and pick holes in them. I think that's perfectly reasonable. So I also understand why he would want 10 episodes to basically have the last laugh. And it is, it is the last laugh that he has in every way. It, should be, it could almost be called the last laugh more than the last dance. I won it. And thanks for coming. And, uh, you know, I've enjoyed uh, smoking cigars and bourbon and please give me some more money. A very interesting thing about Michael Jordan is that, you know, he was a young black guy from sort of semi-rural America who allowed himself to become, you know, famous for everyone. I mean, there's that the, the Gatorade ad where you want to be like Mike. It is so noticeable how many white people there are in that video when you have a look, when you watch back into it. He was so, you know, one of the first sort of, you know, multi-race um, celebrities in that way. So it's very interesting. And so it was something that I talked to Benny Bonsu about was, you know, about that need to control the image. The NBA players and how to control your brand is almost kind of a partnership. It's a life partnership. And that's what I've learned from Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade used to be with Nike and Converses. And then 10 years ago decided that, you know what? Let me go somewhere else and see if what I can do there, build something new. And he decided to take his brand to China and team up with Leaning. 
Li Neng had been around for many years. It's huge in China. Like, and Dwayne Wade went into partnership with them and built his brand. Now, when you go to China, every summer we've done it for the last three summers. We've gone on tour in China. We do 10 cities in literally six days. And every city we go in, we have about 50,000 people show up to see Dwayne Wade. This is a black man or black boy that grew up, played in the NBA in China with that profile, with all these shops, all these brands, and then he's controlling the narrative for him. It's not the West controlling it. It's him controlling on how he wants to be perceived, but also it's him designing the shoes he wants, you know, and then making the money he wants. Not a situation where I don't know what to do, let the team do it. He wants to set the tone for him. And he has done that so successfully over the years to the point now that he now has a lifetime partnership and that extends to his family. So if his son decides to go pro with playing basketball, his son gets a lifetime partnership. Like, have you even heard of that, Gerald? Where do you even hear of that? Players are now basically saying, this is me and I'm going to be as accurate as possible because they're not always happy with how it comes out. Because sometimes, to be honest, Gerald, me, you, we work in the media. And sometimes over the years, some of our colleagues have written stories in a certain way because it gets clicks, clickbaiting stories, or they, they change the headline a bit because it's what, what sells. But what sells and what's reality are two different things. And this is where we lose those athletes. So this is where they go, you know what? We don't need your platform. You can put what you want out there, but we can also speak. But then when they speak, your publication or your newspaper or whatever, it lose credibility because now the truth is coming out of their mouth. Players Tribune is owned by the players. So now they know that they have the money. They have the power to be able to say, look, we don't need you to do anything. We could do it ourselves. They really don't need us journalists to do anything. They can do it themselves if they really wanted to. That was Benny Bonsu talking to us here on The Dive. I'm Jared Kimber. With me is John Norman. We're now going to go to Paul McCarthy, sort of the other side a little bit. He's a former chief sports editor of News of the World with 40 years of experience. And we talked about some of these issues and how players control their image now in a way that they couldn't before. I know Michael Clark, the Australian cricket captain, did a deal with the, basically the newspaper that was giving him the biggest um, trouble. He joined as a columnist. Um, yeah. and, that, and that was a way to stop them. I think Rio Ferdinand's done maybe similar things before. Is that something that, that was quite common back in newspapers in the yeah, day? We had it with Ashley. When I was at the News of the World, we had it with Ashley Cole. Ashley Cole was exposed in the, in the front pages of the News of the World. Um, and his agent actually came. And as part of a settlement agreement, with the news of the world, they agreed to do X amount of columns in the sports pages. In 2018, Raheem Sterling complained about the way the black players were being treated in the press. Yeah. And you can, you can certainly see that. So you can see why someone like him, a young guy who comes through, Absolutely. and there aren't many people who look like Raheem Sterling in the, in the press, especially editors and, and publishers. Yeah. You can see why those sorts of guys are so um, passionate about controlling their image, can't yeah, you? Yeah, he, uh, he was the target of some, I think, quite dreadful reporting. Completely, I think it was completely unfair. And I, I went on Twitter at the time, and I said there was a reason reason for it, that he got, uh, he got targeted rather than even a teammate, Sergio Aguero. If you remember, he went over to Holland to see a pop concert and was involved in a, um, in a road accident that he got an injury and couldn't play the next game. I said, why was there not the same kind of, spotlight and anger venom 
pointed towards Sergio Aguero than it was with um, Raheem Sterling. And I think there was a, there were certainly underlying racial um, issues on that. Uh, I think what Raheem did very well was he started using his own platform and started calling out people. And he got the backing that he richly deserved when he started calling out uh, a media where, like you say, black players and black sportsmen are treated at times differently from white sportsmen. Um, and he called it out, and I think he, he, he gathered a lot of support, um, and he turned it around. But the question that he, that he asks, and that many, many sports people ask as well of the media, is why isn't there the racial representation that there ought to be? And it's a valid question. When I was at the News World Art, I looked around, and we didn't have a black face or any kind of BAME representation in the sports department, which was ridiculous when so many of the highly talented and top-class sportsmen we were covering um, were from the BAME community. So that was Paul McCarthy, uh, former News of the World Chief Sports Editor, and you're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber, and this is John Norman. Well, look, we're coming to the end of the show, and it's a shame we're running out of time because Paul went on to say plenty about how he went about addressing that problem within his department. We've brought up several key points surrounding The Last Dance and what it tells us about life today and how things have changed over the last 20, 30 years. Race, identity, brands, public image, invisible sports, globalisation. But I want to just finish talking about the quest for truth. So there's a passage in Wright Thompson's article which really stood out for me. I mean, there are a lot of passages in that article. It's well worth a read. He describes a scene where Michael Jordan is awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Essentially, you get presented with a medal by the president, who is Barack Obama. That's pretty cool. Anyway, Wright Thompson makes a beautiful comparison between the way Jordan the player took and clutched to his chest in triumph, the NBA trophy, and that in which the way he received this Medal of Freedom from the president, Barack Obama. Now, Wright Thompson writes this. This was something he earned, Jordan, that is. Instead of hunching over and hiding the spoils, he stood there with the medal hanging on his chest. He looked out with something like humility and gratitude on his face. Now, it's the kind of passage that makes you stop and marvel at the author's ability to pluck from something that most people would not even look at and turn it around and make it so profound. But is it true? Is it actually true? We'll never know. And we're okay with that because you either believe this and walk away charged with emotion and wonder or you don't believe it. But the difference between an article and a film like The Last Dance is if you don't like what Wright Thompson is saying, you can just read one of a million other articles until you find the one that you do agree with. The problem that we've got with The Last Dance is if you don't like The Last Dance, that's it. There's not going to be another version of it. So with documentaries or things that are put on TV, which have this kind of book-ending quality to it, if that's how you go into watching it, then you're going to be disappointed. Look, I think as much as anything, it's just that so many people in sport owe Michael Jordan so many things, whether you're a Nike executive or you're Raheem Sterling, or you're a, you know, a kid coming up today trying to play basketball. All these things have been affected by him. He's so big and all-encompassing, and you know he's a 
athlete but a shoe magnate and a team player but a brand and he was global before there was the internet you know he changed his sport and basically all sport forever and even though basketball isn't big in the uk you can see why everyone was watching him you know i was watching him way back then and you're still watching him now it kind of turns out that one way or another that stupid gatorade ad that we all want to be like mike well one way or another i think that's kind of true Next week on The Dive, we're going to be looking at sports comebacks. Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield are going to be fighting each other. We're going to take a good look at that and other athletes who've made comebacks as well. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.